Well, Michael, the, the only evidence that they know each other is a photograph which has been making the rounds on uh, social media of uh, the woman in question um, whose name is Greenfield uh, and Senator Schumer in kind of a, a warm embrace. I wouldn't want to say more about it than that. Uh, at what's obviously a public event. And what I found amusing about that is if there's anyone in the planet as to whom there must be a zillion such photos, it's Donald <laughs> Trump. And what he would tell you uh, right off the bat is just because he has his photograph taken, even in, you know, with, with everyone beaming, that doesn't necessarily mean he knows everybody uh, in the photograph or even anybody in the photograph. So there's no evidence um, that there's actually any uh, kind of an affair going on. Schumer denied it. Engeron, uh, on behalf of Ms. Greenfield, denied it. Um, but the, the constitutional issue here is, um, you know, the, the, there's nothing that Trump said that um, was a violation of the First Amendment. It was, you know, you have to take the background here, which is that Trump is entitled to argue to people that this prosecution is a political vendetta by Democrats against him. The First Amendment doesn't protect you or doesn't allow a prior restraint to be put on uh, the peddling of false information. Uh, and, you know, if Schumer or Greenfield want to sue Trump for defamation, they're, you know, they think they can make that case, they can do that. Um, but really our bright line for uh, gagging people is incitement to crime and really to violence. Trump is not a member of the bar. He's not subject to the rules of the bar. He's not subject to the professional ethics rules. If I said something like that about uh, Judge Engeron's clerk while I was litigating a case before him, I could get a lot of, in a lot of trouble and maybe lose my license or at least lose the privilege of practicing in that court. But Trump isn't beholden to any of those limitations. Okay, right right now, the likelihood of uh, – he's already lost uh, one of the uh, arguments about charges against him, the argument for fraud generally. Uh, there are six more charges that the, the judge is going to uh, make the decision on. Uh, given, given the fact that uh, President Trump – has expressed a, a, a good deal of hostility towards uh, the judge. Uh, it, it, is it uh, likely that he comes out of this trial with a whole series of fines and punishments and judgments against him? Yeah, I, I think, Michael, two things. First, I think Trump would say uh, Angeron did it first, and there's a lot actually to that. I mean, Tish James, who was the attorney general in New York, ran for office promising to leverage the power, the law enforcement powers of New York State against Trump, which is a pretty Soviet type, uh, you know, show me the man and I'll show you the crime sort of thing. Uh, and I must say, I think 20 years ago, a prosecutor or someone who was running for an elective prosecutor's office who promised to abuse her power that way, that would be disqualifying. So, you know, we've got an important cultural change, not only in the legal culture, but I think it's a the broader society. But, you know, putting that aside, uh, even before the complaint was filed, Trump complained. Engeron was the judge who was assigned 
uh, at the point of the investigation. And Trump complained that he was being selectively investigated, which was clearly true. He, all he needed to do was quote uh, the attorney general for that proposition. And what Engeron said is, um, you know, if she's got a thing for him, I don't understand that to be uh, a selective prosecution problem. I think she's going after him because he's a bad guy. Um, so that was the start of it. And then, you know, he's been very chippy in a lot of the uh, things he's had to say. He, I think he's that kind of a guy. He doesn't seem to have many unexpressed thoughts. Most good judges I've ever been before kind of had like seven second tape delay so that like they process what they were going to say before they said it. He doesn't seem to have that feature. Um, so he's had, he's had a lot of nasty things to say about Trump. Trump's had a lot of nasty things to say back. But I think the importance for how this is going to look going forward is by conveying to Trump before the trial even started that he had already lost. That tells Trump that his only relief legally in this case is down the road at the appellate stage if, you know, if he's got any hope at all. So in the here and now, he has this trial. And I think Trump has decided that it's political combat. It's not a legal proceeding anymore because the legal proceeding is a lost cause. The judge has already told him he's lost. Uh, you don't think that this trial uh, outdoes uh, any of the federal prosecutions, do you? I mean, they remain more serious to President Trump. The documents issue in Mar-a-Lago or the uh, overturning the election uh, issue in uh, in Georgia and uh, in Washington, D.C. Those are still more serious threats to President Trump and his future? Well, I've told people um, for months now that they shouldn't go to sleep on the civil case, even though we had these four other criminal cases. And I agree that we should sort of drop off the, um, the two state criminal cases because I don't think they're nearly as serious. Obviously, the federal criminal cases, and I think especially the moral – well, the Mar-a-Lago case, because it's the most serious and it has the most serious charges. The January 6th case, because I think it's got the highest probability of Trump getting convicted between the Washington, D.C. jury pool and a judge who's obviously very hostile to him. Um, so that's an immediate threat. That case comes up in March. But I've always thought this case was an existential threat to Trump in the sense that the state is trying to ruin him. I mean, the at issue in this case are a potential of uh, $250 million or more in uh, in what they call disgorgement penalties. Um, they are trying to put him out of business, take all of the Trump properties uh, and put them into receivership, force him to sell them in order to you know pay whatever has to be paid to the state. And it's not just Trump. It's his adult children as well. Uh, Ivanka is not in the case, but the two adult boys are. If a non-congressional person is chosen as Speaker of the House, does that person then have a vote in House actions? Interesting question. Uh, I believe the, yeah, I believe the answer to that is no. Only elected members of the House are allowed to cast votes. Uh, and, you know, I think it's always um, it's always interesting to to do these kind of what if uh, hypotheticals, but we've never had someone who wasn't in the House Speaker of the House in the history of the United States. And you know, every time there's an opening, the position is open. Somebody uh, you know floats that, but it's never happened before, and I wouldn't expect to see it happen here. 
Well, people would say we've never had uh, a speaker, uh, an attempt to drive out Speaker Cannon in 1910, but he held his position. We've never had a Speaker of the House who lost his position because uh, the vacating of the position was sustained by a majority vote in the House. That never happened before. We, um, yeah, although he was dead man walking, don't you think? I mean, once he agreed to that idea that any one member could, um, you know, could bring up a vacate the chair petition, it was only a matter of time. Yeah, there's now conversation that uh, the new speaker, whoever it is, and it looks like it's very likely going to be the House Majority Leader, Steve Scalise of Louisiana, that whoever it is that they change that provision requiring either 10 votes or 20 votes. And I think yep. 20 votes would be better, don't you? I agree. Totally agree. Uh, okay. In terms of the Trump uh, trial schedule, <laughs> I know that you must have this posted somewhere. Uh, he... Um, uh, before the Iowa caucuses, and the Iowa caucuses are January 15th, uh, he has this trial going on. It's supposed to be settled before January, but it's supposed to be settled sometime in December. What else does he have to deal with? He has round two of the E. Jean Carroll uh, litigation, doesn't he? Yes, also January 15th. It'll be a doubleheader that day, it sounds like. Between uh -huh. the primary <laughs> and the trial. And then two weeks after that, Michael, he has a uh, consumer fraud civil case uh, in, also in the Southern District of New York Federal Court in Manhattan uh, that is supposed to last, I think, three to six weeks, which takes him right into Super Tuesday, which would be the eve of his first criminal trial before Judge Chutkin in Washington, D.C., the federal case involving January 6th and the, the events leading up to it. Uh, I, I fear, even though I think that case legally to me is, um, is dicey, uh, I think that um, the, the legal problems with it, if there, if there are infirmities, will not be obvious to a jury. It's the kind of thing that, you know, when you have legal defenses, that's, they're not as obvious uh, to juries. And I think between a Washington, D.C. jury and a judge that's already, you know, shown uh, flashes of hostility against him, uh, there's a very high probability he'll be convicted of something in that case. That's supposed to start March 4th, I think go two months. Um, that would lead into the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which is supposed to go in mid-May. Uh, former President Trump's legal team today moved in Florida to try to, again, to get the documents case postponed until after the election. And they moved in Washington to try to get the case dismissed on the theory that Trump had immunity uh, in connection with the acts that the government wants to use as evidence against him. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Uh, do you uh, believe that this is going to end up assuring that Trump uh, gets the Republican nomination because it does appear that the majority of uh, Republicans across the country uh, are sympathetic to President Trump's plea that he is a victim of election interference. 
Yeah, I'm very concerned about that because I, I would have thought and hoped, maybe this is too much hope on my part, that people would have realized by this point that he's not electable. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Trump. This isn't a personal thing. This is just math. Um, in 2016 and 2020, in 16, he won miraculously with 46 percent. In 20, he predictably lost in a two-person race with 46 percent. He's never been able to get over 46 percent. His unfavorables in the country are at 55. He will never, after January 6th, sniff 46 percent again. I don't think he would get over 43. I think it could be considerably less. And I think Republicans are failing to factor in what's coming in the next six to eight months, where it's not only all of the evidence that's going to come out on these in these trials, everything the media and Democrats have been saving up, they are going to throw at Trump once he's got the nomination locked. And that includes these crazy social media posts on Truth Social, which very few people know about because that has such a small dissemination. But everybody's going to know about them come uh, this time next year. And if Trump could get 42, 43, I'd be surprised by that. You can't win with that number. So I think people are just stubbornly not coming to grips with the fact that the biggest problem with Trump among many, many problems is he simply can't win. Well, there's there's also a question is when you're talking about January 15th, which is the day of the Iowa caucuses, uh, there is yet another proceeding. And I, we haven't even mentioned the Alvin Bragg proceeding of hush money to porn stars yet, have we? Because that's... That's probably not yeah, I, going to go, go against him, but it, it still would take some of his time, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, Bragg has said that he's willing to step back um, so that the federal cases can go ahead. And, and that's not surprising, given that he's got such a, such a lousy case. I, I'm not surprised that he doesn't want to bring it publicly. I think he was hoping to score points with New York. Remember, he's an elected official. He's not an appointed prosecutor. He's elected. And I think he was trying to score points with New York progressives and probably did simply by indicting him. I'm not sure he wants to try that case. And uh, uh, again, the, 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 the fundamental question here is how much of uh, President Trump's time as the election campaign intensifies, because we're still more than a year away from the actual election, how much of Trump's time is going to be demanded by these various cases? And there are very well, few I think of them. This is what, well, then yeah, they're Michael, going to postpone until after the election, right? I mean. No, no. This is why his strategy, particularly in New York, is to make the case the campaign. You know, he's now decided he's lost the case legally, right? So we might as well use it for the political show. So his his campaign is that the Democrats are on a vendetta against him uh, to try to shunt him aside because he is the only one uh, who can stop the ruination of the country. And he's going to use all of these trials as a platform to say, see what they're doing to me here. And he thinks that's probably as effective as having rallies at this point. And if you're stuck in a courtroom, you can't really have rallies. Right? So. And, yeah, the the, uh, the likely nominee for the Republican Party, uh, if the the reality sinks in, uh, as you put it, that uh, Trump 
simply cannot win. The nominee who could would be? I think DeSantis or Haley, I think virtually anyone in the Republican field could beat Biden. The question is, can they get nominated?